0: Thank you. Hello and welcome to the NCA podcast. I'm Jill Annable, Senior Vice President of Programs here at NCEA. This episode is brought to you by FAX. FAX is a great partner with NCEA, and we are so appreciative of the number of ways that FAX um, works with us and sponsors our variety of programming. I have some great guests with me today. I have Father Tom Simons and Dr. Ronald Fussell, both from Creighton. And it's a joy to be with you today. I'm gonna let you introduce yourselves so that you can give us a little bit more of your background and tell us about your roles you've had in Catholic education and the projects you've been involved in. So I'm gonna go to Father Tom first.
1: Thanks, Jill. Uh, I've been involved in a lot of different um, educational Endeavors since I graduated from Creighton in uh, 1987, but the ones I would highlight I was an assistant principal at two different schools uh, Creighton Prep in Omaha and Red Cloud Indian School out on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Um, at Red Cloud, I was disciplinary assistant principal or dean of students for a year, and then I was principal for four years. Um, Then I was on the governing board at Creighton Prep once I got here to Creighton University. And when I was on the governing board at Prep, we we looked a lot at um, the cost to educate students and the gap between the tuition we charge and the actual cost to educate. And even though the tuition at Creighton Prep, and I'm sure at many Catholic schools is what I would see as high compared to when I I went to school and uh, graduated from high school in 1983, You know, I I think my tuition when I was in high school was like three hundred dollars, something like that, and I was able to to make that in the summer, working out um, on farms and detasseling corn and things like that. Well, now the tuition, you know, for high school anyway, is in the five to ten thousand dollar range, and it's pretty impossible for a high school student to be able to make that much money working in the summer. So that's something I always am thinking about when we raise tuition prices or we look at ways to to find new funding sources for schools is how families can afford catholic education today and the other thing i looked at a lot when i was on the governing board was the mental health needs of students and um, we did a lot of work with looking at you know what are the mental health needs of students today and how are we providing for those and we decided to go with a route of having specialization in our in our counseling department for both academic advising college advising and mental health uh, counseling and I think that's something that was helpful for me to think about those three different areas in many schools one counselor does all of those and to break that apart a bit especially in terms of mental health counseling and have people that are really trained in that area whatever the issue might be depression addiction or whatever uh, I think is something that for a whole host of reasons is something that we need to look at today so
2: that's just a little bit about me and um i'm so happy to be here and to have uh, had the opportunity to collaborate on this project uh, i'm ron fossil i'm a um, faculty member in the educational leadership program at, at creighton so i work primarily with um, aspiring catholic school principals and other leaders and we teach a whole array of courses to prepare our students for those various ministries. Prior to that, um, I was a uh, Catholic school assistant principal in New Hampshire's largest uh, Catholic high school. I handled primarily the academic uh, dimension of school life, but also some of the other um, student life issues as well. And um, for several years, I was also the um, associate superintendent for schools for the uh, diocese of manchester which was all of Hampshire, and uh in that setting uh handled primarily academic concerns but also uh, anything related to uh, Catholicity, leadership development uh, things of that nature in my career so in my role now i'm blessed to have had a variety of experiences leading up to it um, to share with my students and um, to share with the greater community uh, with projects such as uh, what we'll be talking about today.
0: That's great. We I'm excited to talk to you both about uh, a publication for NCA. You're both established authors, but this is called Writing a New Story for Catholic Schools our members got to put it in their hands uh, for the first time when we were together in salt lake city at uh, catholic leadership summit last october um, but it was incredible read for me because for a number of reasons so we're going to dive into that but i first want to ask you both where did the idea come from to write this text at this time
1: i was thinking about that jill it's kind of funny i was making a retreat uh in san diego california i was out for a walk and there was a big billboard that said uh public schools the best schools that are free and started thinking to myself well they're not free because property owners have to pay taxes to support the schools and then i started thinking about "Well, people send their children to private schools including catholic schools they have to pay double so i was already starting to think about like um tuition and taxes and and the double cost to parents and families to go to private schools, but that billboard got me thinking, you know, there's this conception out there that public schools are free when they aren't free. So that was part of it. But even prior to that, NCEA published a series of books, um, Weathering the Storm by Dave Fiore and his colleagues in 2009. Then they followed that up with the story of the storm in 2011. And so that idea of the story of Catholic schools comes from that. And then Kevin Baxter in 2011 published a book called Changing the Ending. And implicated in that, implied in that title of Changing the Ending is Changing the Ending of the Story. The Story of the Storm was a a book that explained the confluence of factors of decline in religious vocations, decline of religious working in schools hiring lay faculty, increasing salaries, increasing costs, decreasing ability of parents and families to pay the cost to educate, Um, fewer people sending their kids to Catholic schools uh, because they started to question Catholicity of schools with fewer increasing religious in the schools and because of the higher costs. So it was kind of like a confluence of a circle of factors that kept feeding on each other. So that idea of the story of the storm, the ending of the story, and I thought to myself well let's write a whole new story. Uh, And then I saw this billboard sign so that's kind of the genesis of the title writing a new story for Catholic schools, at least from my point of view.
0: That's great. I, I really appreciate the work. Um, and it's timely. It, it really dives into where are we now and how did we get here? And, uh, actually the first chapter really, I was really drawn by the first chapter and and it's, you know, to some, it, it won't be earth shattering, but to me, it was a very precise, um, narrative of the history of Catholic schools, very crucial that all Catholic school leaders understand this history and that I can roll off their tongue. I don't know that we're all good at this, um, school principals and superintendents to talk about the history of Catholic education in the United States. Um, what are some things that you included in chapter one? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what are some things that all Catholic school leaders should know and understand?
1: I think the main point of Chapter one is it's a historical overview from the time of the American Revolution until more or less the present day of how we got to where we are, which is um, a high wall of separation between church and state. And part of that is um, separation of funding between private public schools. Exploring how we got to where we are today. And uh, a big piece of that was anti Catholicism um, and also anti private school sentiments that were present around the time of the revolution and and even moving beyond that. into the late 1800s it became more of a concern about immigrants coming into the United States with new ways new religions new ideas and, and a really strong desire to Americanize people through one public school system, which at that time they called the common schools. The idea was if every young person in the United States had a common education, a common grounding, the same books, the same religious uh, catechetical instruction, the same patriotic instruction, then we would become unified because at that time we were still, you know, we were still young, we were still new. We were trying to come together from 13 colonies into one. E pluribus unum from many comes one, and even though we had more and more states, the Civil War is just a great example of how we, you know, there was still a lot of discord and division, and we see that again today actually um, how it's difficult to stay together when you have different points of view, so the common schools were a way to try and work towards that unity. Unfortunately. Because of anti-Catholicism and anti-immigrant sentiments, and thinking about the way things were in England, and we trying to get away from England, these sentiments have been um, turned into laws in the states, um, and they're still in the state constitutions in many states. I think it's around thirty-five states that have these Blaine amendments um, that are that are definitely a result of anti-Catholic sentiments. I mean, there's no doubt historically that you can show that that's where they come from. And so, you know, when we try to advocate for school vouchers or savings accounts or things like that, um, even lower level assistance like tuition tax credits, the resistance may no longer be due to anti-Catholicism or anti-immigrant sentiments. It's just like the way we do things, and it's been um, made concrete through different Supreme Court rulings. But some more more recent Supreme Court rulings seem to be moving towards eliminating blind amendments in state constitutions, finding them unconstitutional. They seem to be moving towards allowing more tax credits. So, really, the purpose of Chapter One, like you said, Jill, is just to give people the background and the knowledge as they engage hopefully in some um, work some collaboration with other people in state catholic conferences and diocesan offices and with legislature legislators to try and advocate for uh, parental choice in the education of their children Uh, the whole concept that uh, the public school is for everyone and everyone should send their children to public schools historically really the in the United States it was more that the parents choose what is the best education for their child and we've been doing it one way for so long that people are like well this is the way it's always been and we can't do it any other way and when you really look historically that isn't accurate and I would say it's probably reasonable to say parents don't have as much choice in the education of their children as they should I mean certainly the state has a right to expect some basic um, goals, some basic values, some basic things be in place, but does the state have the right to mandate where your tax money goes for schools and um, which school your child goes to in the sense that, you know, if you aren't wealthy you have to go to their school so it's a controversial issue it's it's a it's a hugely controversial issue but i think when you look at it historically there are different ways to see things than a lot of the narratives that we hear today that's basically what i wanted to get across in chapter one
0: that's great and not to mention that if all of the catholic school students in the country um tomorrow went to public we have no idea where that money would come from right we're talking about i think it's 22 Oof! Now I know the number off the top of my head: twenty-two million, no, twenty-two billion dollars a year um, to educate the Catholic school students had they been in public schools. So we are actually saved that much money um, in federal dollars, uh, which is which is incredible. So, th- so thank you for that for that history. In the rest of part one, then you outline unique structures for Catholic school governance. You get into some details of Crystal Ray and Big Shoulder Fund all kinds of partners in that um but i want to know so people can go through there and and work their way through all of those different governance structures but what do you predict to be some of these innovations in catholic school governance um post pandemic as we come out of this what have we learned and what are some uh structures you might see coming next
1: yeah i was thinking about your question about that jill it's a good question um you know the pandemic has stressed us in a lot of ways that we're still probably not even aware of but um you know just looking at what's happening to teachers in schools and how they're having to lose their lunch periods and their prep periods in order to cover for faculty for peers who are not there for example just not something we really anticipated or could plan for and it's creating this kind of sense of uh burnout among teachers so it's just an example of we don't really know all the implications of these several years of this, and and we don't know if it's going to continue. I mean, there's just a lot of unknowns. But I think one thing we can say is Catholic schools, because they are locally directed, they're nationally aligned, but they're locally directed. They're a little more nimble, maybe, than larger school districts and larger school systems. They can make decisions more quickly based on what best practices might be out there.
0: So I think some of the
1: ideas in the chapters in this book, chapters especially two, three, and four where I look at um, regional schools, consortiums of schools, networks of schools, um, I think if schools are find that they're struggling during the pandemic or looking towards the future with an uncertain eye, you know, they're, the closing is not the only option. I mean, we've done consolidations in the past, but to think about consolidations in a new way where you take the best of one school and pair it with another school in order to have greater purchasing power in order to have better financials um, in order to be able to offer better programs so you you know all of these things like micro schools which you and others have written about closing a school is not a given there's lots of ways out there whether it's having a very small school where you go back to kind of a multi-grade education in one classroom model or whether it's a virtual school where you have um, a para educator working with students and then receiving some instruction uh, through the internet from a school that's larger further away, uh, whether it's combining smaller grade schools uh, into one uh, regional school that has an economy of scale. There's just a lot of opportunities out there and the dual language schools are really popular with parents and um, there's research showing that their uh, enrollment is going up um, and that that's a really good model for school. So. And I mentioned that in the, in the book as well, as well as other models. But I, I think the point is, Catholic school educators, when they if they're looking to the future with an eye of uncertainty, to reach out to NCEA or, or look at this book or reach out to other people, because there are a lot of ideas out there where schools can continue to um, succeed, move forward, be successful. Uh, even if they're even if they're smaller, or even if they need to combine resources with somebody else. So I think it's actually can be a positive added outlook. If you look at it in the idea of trying to innovate with the goal of we have something really good, we want to keep it going.
0: That's great. Um, Amen to that micro schools and other innovations I didn't even, you know, didn't even tee you up for that but um, there's so many, so many ways we can prevent school closure and use innovation there. Um, when we think differently about governance structures and if we've done nothing else for the last couple of years it's been we've been thinking differently about how we do things and why we do it which is incredible. Um, all right, when we get to part two now we go to, we go to Dr. Fussell and. Um, It's funny now to look back at chapter five. So when I first read chapter five, I knew we were in the middle of teacher shortage and anyone in higher ed who does teacher prep knows, knew that this was coming. You could see it in your numbers before we saw it in our numbers down on the ground, um, with hiring processes. And so as we experience this teacher shortage throughout the country, uh, in some regions more than others, what advice do you give, um, to principals? because chapter five is all about this advice and how to hire for mission, but what specific advice do you have to support principals during this difficult time for hiring?
2: So yeah, the, uh, the, the teacher shortage is, is real, Jill. That, that's for sure. And uh, we're certainly seeing that in Nebraska where you know, we're located. It's in the public schools and it's in the, um, it's in the, the Catholic schools as well. So um, I don't know all of the solutions um, for for solving the the teacher shortage. I think they're broad and systemic and and it just really requires um, a lot of brain power and effort. But but like you said, retention is is critical. So my my advice to um, Catholic school leaders is is to focus on hiring permission, but but specifically retention. you know, I, I recall when I was in my first year teaching in a public school, very early in my career, uh, we turned over about a third of our teachers every year, uh, and, and that that blew my mind. And when I switched over to Catholic schools, about five to ten percent uh, that we would we would turn over. So, you know, that that's in settings where where retention I think is is uh, better and and more more effectively handled. And we know from the research that if Catholic school teachers are committed to the mission of the school uh, and they've bought into that, it's more likely that, that they're going to say there have been peer-reviewed uh, journal articles on that. So hiring permission is important. And I, and I just mentioned that, and, and I know you mentioned it too, but in my travels and I, I, you know, I go to different schools and I, and I see different models, I, there are a lot of other motivating factors that have to do with hiring that have nothing to do with mission. Um, you know, you, you want uh, a certain kind of teacher and, and there, there may be reasons for that. Uh, and, you know, that oftentimes they, they don't have anything to do with mission. So, or, or mission is one of the last things that we, that we think about. So that, that's an important consideration in addressing the teacher shortage in Catholic schools locally you know i I would say that there's a model of curriculum planning where the planner will begin with the end in mind so um what they do is you know you reverse engineer their curriculum from there it's called backwards design and i think you can take a similar approach for for recruiting teachers so one of the things that we advocate for in our book is um to work from graduate outcome statements you know many schools have these and the jesuit schools for example have the grad at grad statements or the vision of a graduate at graduation um, we need to know what the what the outcome is and what the end product and, and from there we can design and engineer a process um, with with thoughtful discernment about how to recruit teachers for our catholic schools so but if we pay attention to our hopes and dreams for our students, then that will provide some scaffolding about the desired trades sought from teachers in the recruiting process, and we don't just have to guess. You know that can also translate to to job descriptions. You know the the teacher's job description should drive the um, hiring process and the recruitment process, and that job description should have roots that are sunk deep into mission and Catholic identity and what it is that we hope for our students. Correct. So um, our book provides some, some specific examples about how to kind of backwards design, uh, reverse engineer, how you want that hiring process to look. And then I also say that, um, you know, Catholic schools are Disadvantaged by the disparity between public school and Catholic school salaries, uh, and that—that's just the reality. In, in most cases uh, that, that I'm aware of, you make more money in a public school um, if you're if you're a teacher um, at any point in their career. But I think that there are advantages to working at Catholic school that that can balance that out. So the ability and the expectation to to model faith in a family atmosphere is that relational component to be able to attend to the whole person formation of the students in your class to include the faith element is something that appeals to a lot of people. Um, You know, my time working as an assistant principal and I would handle some hiring and uh, interview teachers and and run teacher searches uh, and whatnot. The um, you know, we would often have teachers who would come into our Catholic school after many years in a public school, and they would comment, I, "You know, I have no idea what I was missing. This is so great. This is like a completely different kind of teaching." So, um, you know, I think of it as a, a service ministry, and and I think that kind of language re- responds um, to to a need, and, and people respond to that. To the idea of being able to serve. So uh, I would highlight these points in the the hiring and and recruitment process. Um, And like I said, some of the best fits that I've seen in Catholic education for for teachers are people who just really buy into mission and the ability to to form students um, so that they can meet their full potential and become the the adults eventually that God intended them to be.
0: I love that. And your, um, your explanation there echoes my own experience from going from public school teacher to Catholic school teacher. And, uh, yeah, that you don't know that difference until you're in that interview process and you realize, yeah, like I, I'm on this mission to educate children, but definitely want to do it with my faith. And I think you can hear, you can hear those things in the interview process, uh, with candidates who is, who's part of that bigger picture with you as a Catholic school and who's not, um, I, until the, until here, I did not um, make that connection with backward design. My background is curriculum. So when, um, when I got to that part, I, I thought, yes, like, why aren't we thinking of the bigger picture and backward engineering, how, um, who we hire now is who we should keep for 30 years. And how do we, um, how do we discern that in a very thoughtful hiring process? So I appreciate, um, you making that connection um, to the concept of backward design. That was great. Um, okay. I want to get on to chapter six because it was my favorite because, um, if you've been on any accreditation visit, according to the NESVEX, the national standards and benchmarks, you know, that when a school is lacking a communication plan, there's a lot that falls out. And so, um, You directly call out schools that lack those written communication plans by then providing um, for them. So, how might a school start in the process of having a written communication plan? Because there's a difference here. There are schools who say, "Oh, yeah, we got we have some plans here," but actually written down as a communication plan is different. So, what is important to include, or what tips can you give us?
2: So, um, in my experience working in the Catholic Schools Office and kind of a rural diocese. And I know your, your experience might've been the same uh, in your previous position. The the principal can't do it alone. And, and many of the parish schools might have a K through eight elementary school and you might have a principal and a secretary and a part-time bookkeeper and, and that's it. Um, and that's all the support you get. And so it requires a, a shared collaborative effort. You know, I was really drawn to this to this project, to this book, by the idea of how is it that Catholic schools tell their story. And I think that the most compelling arguments that we can make for Catholic education in general, uh, in in the United States and elsewhere, and locally in our schools, has to do with the stories that we tell. Um, And and it's more effective than maybe some some other ways of of presenting a case for Catholic education, people respond to stories. So it requires a, a collaborative effort, and it's important to consider, um, you know, how, what what is the story of, of your school? What has it been, and and how, you know, if we wrote a story now post pandemic or kind of emerging from the pandemic. What what would we call this chapter of our story? Um, so so, the principal can come up with those answers by themselves. Uh, that would be my my first point to consider just coming up with a plan. Again, you know, I've been on many accreditation visits. I've never seen uh, uh, communications plans that look identical. They all kind of, the ones that have plans meet the, the needs of, of the school. You know, I think it's important within the communications plan for, for schools to look at their online presence. I think that, that's obvious, but, but still something that not all Catholic schools understand, I think. Um, you know, To anyone listening to this podcast, I suggest go back and look at the last 20 Instagram posts or Facebook posts or whatever you're using on social media. And what does that say about your school? Does it tell a story of a school that's kind of focused on college prep or athletics or something else? Or does it tell the story of a faithful-filled environment and something that that accentuates your Catholic school identity within the context of all that other stuff. And in the book, we provide some examples of some, some effective ways to do that. So um, again, uh, electronically in that, in that electronic ether, how do we tell our story um, is something that needs to be reflected in that communications plan because it's a blessing and a curse these days. You know, there's instantaneous access to everything, um, gone are the days when just having like a newsletter that goes out every month—that's enough. You know, people are expecting a, a dynamic approach to to learning more about the school on a regular basis. So, um, so social media. We also, uh, you know, obviously the website is is important. Um, and, and again, I, I mentioned that. Yeah, you know, I, I say it's obvious, but I know from looking at Catholic school websites that, that they're not always effective. So consider, you know, how your your web presence reflects the story that your school is telling. Um, what does the color scheme say about your your school? The, the, the logo, the the motto, the the images um, these are all these are all important. If you have to click five or six times to be able to get to the mission of your school, um, then then maybe maybe there's some work that needs to be done to make the mission more pronounced or, or obvious to people we are trying to to learn more about your school. And I think also in the plan, it's important to to identify who your your storytellers are. Your teachers are obviously storytellers, but um, students are as well, and and parents are. And uh, to to formalize a a way to to mobilize those storytellers in ways that they present a uniform, cohesive message about what your school is about, you know, who you are and what you're about. Um, and and when that all aligns with mission and everything else that we put out there, that's like 90% of the the communications piece.
0: This is great. I, you know, this really echoes if, if this is resonating with you as a listener, um, to the podcast, this really is a continuation of a few episodes ago. We talked about, um, what, uh, about research, about what makes, um, Catholic families choose high school Catholic high schools and And what we got into there was talking about how um, you're talking about the storytellers here, but also who are you telling your story to and how you're telling the story of your school to students is different than how you tell the story to their parents and to the alumni and to is your website for the people who you want to bring into the school or is it for the information for those who are already enrolled? And your story on Instagram is probably for the students, your high school students, at least, whereas Facebook might be for the grandparents, you know, whatever, Right, so there's different um, layers here to consider, and um, for those who who are ready to dive in, um, this chapter is for you, Chapter Six. So this is this is incredible. So thank you for writing uh, writing a new story for Catholic schools. This is a great gift to Catholic education. Um, this should be on the shelves of all of our all of our school leaders. Um, It's very approachable. It's a great text to have in front of them. So thank you for this work. Um, I would be remiss if I missed to also talking about that. The three of us have a project going on together and that our membership will see that come fall, fall of 22. Um, these are the standards for Catholic school system leadership. And that's not what this podcast is about, but I, you know, it'd be strange if I didn't mention that we're working on this. So, um, what can either of you tell us about that project? and what people will see in the fall.
1: Um, I would just begin by saying, Jill, that it comes, at least from our point of view at Creighton, it comes out of research that uh, I did with Ron Fussell and Tim Cook here at Creighton, where we interviewed, I believe it was 10 former Catholic school superintendents who had recently stepped down from their positions. Um, And in interviewing them, we. We learned that there's a lot of inconsistency across the country in the amount of resources and support that superintendents have in Catholic diocesan school systems, Uh, we also learned that um, in some places. Best practices are not in place Uh, very basic things like. uh, a Really well thought out job description, a good onboarding process Uh, some things that surprised me um it seems like the superintendency is still kind of more of an informal uh position uh the bishop delegates uh or yeah delegates responsibility to the superintendent maybe there's a person in between the bishop and the superintendent but the superintendent has authority and responsibility for the school system but it seems like in some places um it's not formalized it's not structured and there are best practices missing so my hope is that as a, a nationally aligned group of Catholic school educators, we know we have local control, but I hope we can be nationally aligned through the National Catholic Educational Association and you know, look at clear eyes when we see that there are uh, things that could be done better in places and, and be open to that. So that these, these standards come from that. They're really, the vision is for them to be helpful to superintendents, to bishops, um, to chancellors, to vicars for Catholic education, to others who are involved in leadership at the system level, like in the Catholic school's office. We hope they'll be a helpful resource to make things better.
0: That's great. And I so all superintendents have a draft of that in their hands at this point. So if anyone is listening and doesn't see that, they can work with their local superintendent for a draft of that or reach out to us if they'd like to see that work in action. Um, with final publication, really taking the stage at Catholic Leadership Summit um, next October. So we'll be able to see the final draft of that. Um, and yeah, used as a guide, used as, um, a support for new superintendents who aren't sure how to describe their responsibilities and priority areas, but also for those in positions, um, where they want to be most effective. So it's been a joy to be on that project with you. Thank you both for being here. It's been fun to talk with you. We could talk all day, I think about, um, Catholic education. So Thank you for being here. Thank you FACTS for sponsoring this episode. Thank you listeners uh, for giving us your time. We hope you all have a great day.